Chapter 5, The Farm. No one except Mom and Dad was sure why they all loaded into the station wagon early one morning and drove for a long time. Excitement and secrets were in the air. After the car warmed up and the scenery began to roll by in monotonous reiterations of sameness, they quieted down and played I Spy games. Finally, the car followed a series of dirt roads and pulled into an abandoned farm. It was an impressive place. <clears throat> A large brick home with two new barns, six grain silos, row after row of big tractors and equipment. The newest barn had two huge combines and a variety of new farming implements. To the children's amazement, their dad took a key from his pocket and ushered them into the house. It was large, with five bedrooms, a living room, a family room, two bathrooms, and a roomy kitchen. Someone had spent a lot of time and money decorating it with uh, long, beautiful draperies and deep carpets. Everything about the farm spoke of prosperity and security. They explored for hours before they finally reached, returned to the car. It was a warm spring day with patches of snow still on the north side of the buildings. Laura spread out their picnic lunch on the tailgate of the station wagon. Well, what do you think, Dad asked, a strangely neutral expression on his face. Various expressions of big, new, pretty, and amazing sounded from the children. How big is it, Dad? Sam asked. It's 840 acres, all sprinkler irrigated. It produces an average of 80 bushels to the acre of wheat and barley. It had 80 acres of alfalfa and... Dad! Sam interrupted, anxious to get to the point. Why are you showing us this place? Jim glanced at Laura, who gave a sly grin. Well, we're thinking of buying it. What do you think? The excitement in his voice was too much to suppress, and he sounded like a little kid on the verge of fulfilling every dream he'd ever had. The family all started talking at once and rushed up to give their papa a big group hug. They had often heard <clears throat> him talk about his dream farm. To Sam, this farm seemed to fit this description in every way. It was a wonderful place, and the thrill and excitement built up inside him. They all loaded in the car again and drove around huge fields thick with grain stubble. This farm was long, narrow, and L-shaped. It stretched two miles in one direction and one mile in the other. The fields were a quarter mile wide in most cases. There were three other homes on the farm, one of which was still inhabitable and had its own small collection of barns and milking parlor. The others had long been abandoned and had at one time or another housed cattle. One of the small homes had twelve small triple bunk beds built along the walls of two small bedrooms. They learned later that a family named Christiansen had raised a fa wonderful family of 12 kids in that small home. This Idaho community was small, but large enough for two thriving wards. Their church was an old converted grade school complete with flagpole. Comically, the bishop's door still had principal lettered on the glass. The other farms in the area were well kept and prosperous looking. Everyone they stopped and talked to was enthusiastic about the farm they were proposing to buy and welcomed them as potential neighbors. It was a wonderful, positive day, and they all returned home exhausted but happy. The papers were signed two weeks later, and Sam moved on to the new farm immediately to begin spring plowing. The family began packing for the unbelievable task of moving 20 years of accumulated possessions into their new home. It was with a sense of adventure and exhilaration that Sam went out that first morning to hook up the plow. He selected the largest of four tractors. It started like a dream. No grinding noises, no spraying starting fluid, or hunting for booster cables that he was used to. He selected six bottom plow and hooked it up. 
He chose the field closest to the house and lowered the plows. They slid into the rich brown soil and started rolling deeply into the earth. Sam had spent hundreds of hours plowing, albeit never on a rig this big, yet his senses told him something was wrong. The tractor was jerking, and that concerned him. He stopped and walked back to the plow. To his amazement, he was picking up large stones. He was plowing too deep. Back in the back big cab, he turned the dials to adjust the plow depth. Again, he picked up the stones and had to raise the plow to where they were almost not able to roll over the dirt. After a whole day of fighting the shallow soil, he moved to another field and found it the same. With a heavy heart, he called his dad and told him about the shallow soil. They consulted for a while and decided it was not a tragedy. It would still, it would take a different tool to till the ground. Still, they wondered why the plow was on the property if it was not usable. The new disc was 16 feet wide with 24 inch diameter discs. It could be adjusted from inside the cab to cut exactly 6 inches deep. It rolled the soil as neatly as any plow with half the effort, and it didn't pick up rocks. The big tractor pulled it like it was, wasn't even there. Sam hooked the big set of harrows behind the disc and began preparing the soil with a single pass. The big equipment worked like a dream. In the air-conditioned cab, you could turn on stereo music and drive for hours without so much as a moment's discomfort. With their old, open-air tractors, plowing was a freezing, runny-nosed, dusty, bouncing, exhausting job. With their new tractors, it hardly seemed like work. The hardest part was the amount of time it took. A quick calculation told them they would have to plow almost 24 hours a day to be done in time. It became obvious why the big equipment was there. Not for the comfort, but for speed. They settled into six-hour shifts. Sam plowed for six hours, then Jim took over. It took almost two weeks to prepare the fields. Spreading fertilizer took another week. They hooked two smaller tractors to the cedars, and Emily and Cheryl each took one. At 17, they were adept at <clears throat> adept drivers, careful to not miss a patch, and mindful to keep their hoppers full. The girls worked at it about 10 hours each day, and then Sam and Jim took over. Finally, after six weeks of around-the-clock labor, it was done, and the entire family slept for two straight days. The spring was glorious, with flowers blossoming and green appearing everywhere. When the grain finally peaked through the soil, it was a wonder to look across 800 acres of rolling fields carpeted with a haze of green. It was the miracle of spring as far as the eye could see, and it was the hope of the future filled with promise slowly peeking through the soil. Shortly thereafter, it was time to start irrigating. The big pumps were carefully oiled and adjusted. There was no way to test the sprinkler equipment other than to pressurize it with water. So after the many tests could be done dry, the big pump was switched on. The water exploded into the big machine with a roar like a jet engine. The first mile of mainline was buried until it reached the two <coughs> irrigation circles. An irrigation circle is a large irrigation machine. One end is an anchor to the large to the center of a large 160-acre field and pivots around it. The machine itself looks like a quarter-mile-long suspension bridge on wheels. The wheels slowly turn as it slowly moves around the field in a large, like the large hand of a clock. As it goes, it sprinkles water on the thirsty ground. The farther from the center, the larger the sprinklers become. In mere seconds, water streamed from the first sprinklers. As the water moved down the quarter-mile length, of the big circle, the rainbirds clicked their life-giving rhythm, each one slightly larger than the one before it, until the mighty nozzle on the end burst to life, spraying its one-inch thick jet of water over 50 feet as it came to the corners of the field. 
Their new ward was wonderful and welcomed them with enthusiasm. They were loved and accepted from the first day at church. It was like finding family, like coming home. And the entire family basked in the warmth of their fellowship. Their chapel had been a small gymnasium in the old school, and the organ was pedal-powered and sounded asthmatic. To make matters more frustrating, not a soul in the ward could play more than one hand. Sam could play one hand and a finger, so he was instantly called as the new ward organist. He took the calling seriously and spent hours practicing until he could squeeze as much music from the old gasping organ as was physically possible. Not long after they moved in, the ward announced plans to modify the old church house and add on. In those days, the ward members were either expected to raise half of the money or do half the labor. Since money is not a surplus item in the farming community and, worked <clears throat> and work is second nature to them, they opted for, to do the labor. Each priesthood holder was asked to invest two hours a day or ten hours a week to build the church. Sam and Jim accepted the challenge. So in addition to the physical demands of activating and maintaining a new farm, they happily worked on the new addition to the church. Six months after moving into the ward, Jim was called as bishop. It was a surprise to Jim, who considered himself a plow horse suitable for the fields, not a race horse to prance in front of people. He accepted with as much humility as a human soul can possess and still be able to breathe. His sweet spirit touched the hearts of the ward members and things began to happen. He plainly confessed to everyone his lack of knowledge and understanding on how to run a ward, especially to Heavenly Father. As a result, he relied entirely on the Lord and inspired de decisions were made. Bishop Jim, as the ward members affectionately called him, found there were many inactive members in his ward. He visited them whenever he could find them. New faces showed up at church, and their marvelous little ward loved them so openly that they came back every week. It was a time of great spiritual growth for Jim as the mantle of the office settled upon his shoulders, and it was a time of rejuvenation for his ward. For Sam, the change that came over his father was startling. Jim's quiet humility seemed to deepen, but the power behind the quietness was the most amazing of all. The power was accompanied by a quiet dignity that made Jim seem majestic in an unassuming way. Sam watched with wonder. His dad was still human, prone to error, and occasionally moved to anger. This might have seemed hypocritical, except that Sam knew his father well enough to know that his heart was rock solid in his faith. Sam understood that his dad wanted to be perfect, both personally and as the bishop, yet he also knew him well enough to know that he did not pretend perfection. With Jim Hoy, his exterior was a perfect reflection of his soul. He spoke and acted the same on the fields as in the pulpit. On one occasion, toward the middle of the summer, Sam and his dad were loading sacks of chicken feed at the feed store when another truck backed up beside them. A man with a full black beard climbed out. He was unfamiliar to them. In the way of country folk, they immediately shook hands and introduced themselves. The, name, the man's name was Jake Please. Sam had heard the name many times and had remembered it well. Whenever they were subject... No. Whenever the subject of enemies to the church came up, this man's name always seemed to be the top of everyone's list. Jim smiled at the man, and before he could withdraw his hand, he said, Jake, I'm your new bishop. Jake's eyes narrowed, and he forcibly withdrew his hand. You ain't my bishop. I don't belong to your church. And if you know what's good for you, you'll drop the subject. He glared for a second and then walked away. Sam breathed a sigh of relief. Jake, please. Oh, no. Jake, please, was a large and powerful man. 
and his face had an edge of steely sharpness that made Sam want to follow his advice and let the man leave. Jim, however, walked right up to him. I need you to be my ward clerk, he said, loud enough for everyone on the loading platform stopped and looked up. Nearly all of them were members and knew Jake Please's reputation for antagonism toward the church, but it was noisy, so they couldn't hear much of the conversation that followed. I told you, let it drop. I don't want to have to rough up a good man just because his mouth got to running away with him. Again, Jake turned away. It's not going to be easy, Jim said, just as loudly as before. What isn't going to be easy, Jake demanded, thinking Jim was saying it wouldn't be easy to rough him up but a slight edge of curiosity softened the hostility. Getting you ready to serve the Lord as my ward clerk, Jim replied matter-of-factly. There was an almost an explosion of anger, but Jake's curiosity won. What are you talking about, he demanded vehemently. I'm probably going to have to excommunicate you first, Jim replied with a thumb and a finger on his chin as if considering the situation carefully. You can't excommunicate me, I ain't done nothing that bad. Then why don't you come to church? Because I don't like it, that's all. I ain't been to church since I was ten years old. Didn't like it then, don't like it now. I always found that when someone doesn't like church, it's all because they've done something that they need to be excommunicated for. So that's what I'm going to do. But I ain't done nothing that bad, Jake protested. What have you done then? You better fess up so you can be my ward clerk like the Lord wants, and I don't have to ex you. It's up to you. Jake had to stop and think. Well, me and the wife, we about broke every commandment there is, I suppose, except for the really bad stuff. But nothing too bad to get exed for. My wife would kill me if you exed us. Hmm. Well, maybe we can get this cleared up after all. But you and the wife had better come see me tonight at the church. Come prepared to get your lives in order and we can maybe avoid the excommunication. Is seven o'clock okay? You're damn right it is. We'll be there. And don't you go exing us before we get there, you hear? I'll wait for you. Don't be late. Nice to finally meet you, Jake. Yeah, maybe. They shook hands and Jake stomped off. Jim stepped over to his son and smiled as Sam's <laughs> draw dropped. Sam didn't really didn't realize he was standing there agape. They loaded the feed in silence and started home. Dad? What is it, Sam? How do you know Jake wouldn't punch you for saying what you did to him? I didn't. What you said, though, you can't excommunicate someone like that, can you? I mean, just because they don't like coming to church? No, of course not. Then why did you say you would? To be honest with you, I don't know. I felt the Spirit come over me as soon as we shook hands. I have learned over the years that when the Holy Spirit touches me, I say or do what I'm told to say or do. I have had some amazing experiences, and this was one of the strangest. It was probably the only thing I could have said to get him to, into the bishop's office. Whatever the eternal truth of the matter is, it was what the Lord wanted me to say. I said it, and Jake responded. That's what really matters. When they come tonight, I'm going to explain the entire process of church discipline so they understand. I'll set it all straight so that they aren't acting under a misunderstanding. However, they are coming, and that's a wonderful start. Is he really going to be the ward clerk? As soon as I touched his hand, I knew I was supposed to call him to that position. If he carries through with his part of it, I will call him to that position just as the Lord wants. Brother and Sister Please kept the meeting with the bishop that night and were both disfellowshipped. Part of the conditions of their repentance was that they could not miss a single sacrament meeting for six months. Accordingly, the next Sunday, they came to sacrament meeting. Brother Please wore his work clothes but had buttoned up his collar and tried a dark string tie around his neck. Tied a dark string tie around his neck. 
He looked extremely uncomfortable, but plowed his way bravely through the small crowd of faithfuls. He shook everyone's hand with a painful grip, laughed with a loud voice, and acted like he was had never missed a Sunday in his life. With his full black beard, Brother Please looked like a charging bear. Even so, not a single member backed away or acted surprised to see him, and the elders fought as to who would sit by him in priesthood. Sister Please wore a red miniskirt, red high heels, red beads, bright red lipstick, and a hairstyle full of red hair. She looked like a lady of the night and was the exact opposite of Jake. She spoke to almost no one and clung to her husband's hand like a frightened child. It took three sisters to lovingly pry her loose from him to attend Relief Society. They had three children, all girls, who dressed in worn jeans. They ranged from 9 to 14 and desperately wanted to be somewhere else. Before church had even begun, they had accepted a dinner invitation to the neighbor's home that evening, and the magic of the Holy Spirit and love began to work. As the weeks progressed, the Please family continued to come. Each week, Brother Please, Please's beard grew shorter and shorter. Sister Please's dress grew longer. The third week, all three girls showed up in cute dresses and each carried a new copy of the Book of Mormon. The transformation that gradually occurred was a miracle as surely as the dividing of the Red Sea. In exactly six months, Brother Please accepted the position of ward clerk and Sister Please the position of primary presidency, a position in the primary presidency. Their girls looked as if they had never missed a day of church in their lives. The most amazing transformation of all occurred in Brother Please's soul. Where once there was bitterness and a hardened heart, now there was a gentleness that only the influence of the Holy Ghost can bring. On the day he was called to this new position, the bishop asked him to bear his testimony. He walked up slowly to the pulpit and steadied himself with both hands. I want you to know that Bishop Jim tricked me into repenting. This brought a ripple of laughter, but Brother Please was serious. The first time we met, he threatened to excommunicate me if I didn't come to, if I didn't become the ward clerk. At that time, I was an angry, violent, unforgiving person. Everything inside of me told me to beat him senseless. I once spent a week in jail for hitting someone who shoved religion in my face. But something was different about Bishop Jim. I could feel his love for me, or probably what I was feeling was Heavenly Father's love for me, but it felt good, and I desperately wanted to know why it was coming from Bishop Jim when he should have been afraid of me. I wanted it bad enough to go to the bishop's office to find out. Over the years, I had convinced myself that God didn't love me, so I didn't love him. I believed I was too nasty for anyone to love, including God. I thought my wife stayed only because I fed and housed her. I didn't think anyone, including her, could love me. But it was that morning when I met Bishop Jim that I felt God's love for the first time. Since that time, I have come to the amazing realization that not only does God love me, but my wife and girls do too. Oh yeah, I admit that I don't deserve their love, but now realizing they do has literally <laughs> literally melted my soul. I feel inclined to forgive Bishop Jim for tricking me because I know he was acting as the Lord's servant. Besides, he told us straight out that first meeting that he owed me a better explanation, so he didn't really trick me. As I think about it, he probably said the only thing in the world that could have gotten me to set foot inside this church. He chuckled at the truthfulness of what he had just said, then became somber again. You have all witnessed the change that has come over me and my family. Look how beautiful my daughters are in their new dresses. They had never worn a dress before in their lives. I can hardly believe how beautiful they are. Look how my wife glows with the Holy Spirit. 
I've seen her in every kind of clothing imaginable, but I've never seen her look as beautiful as she does this very minute, radiating love and goodness. He smiled at his family on the third row, and they squirmed uncomfortably. Thanks to you all, he said, I have come to the startling conclusion that not only is the church true, but the gospel is true. By that I mean that not only is this his true church, but it also works. It blesses lives, it changes people, it purifies and uplifts. It takes mean, nasty, sinful people like me and helps them repent, which leaves them feeling clean inside. For that, I will be eternally grateful. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brother Please remained at the pulpit a few more seconds before adding in dead seriousness. I offer as a witness to the fact that I just said the whole bit without cursing a single time. That in and itself, my brothers and sisters, is a miracle. Those who knew him nodded vigorously in agreement. During this time, the farm continued to look more dismal. It was exhausting, unrelenting, and hopeless work. There was not enough water. As the summer progressed, even the big well lost pressure and started sucking air. They had to throttle it back, and the water going onto the fields was insufficient. The grain suffered and matured slowly. Over 200 acres were lost to faulty or missing equipment. Harvest was frightening and exciting that year. They prepared the big combines, swept out the grain silos, put the grain bed on the truck, and made everything ready. Jim lowered the cutter bar and started into the grain on the field beside the house. Sam was riding on the combine, making adjustments and helping. After a few minutes, a trickle of grain flowed into the hopper. It gradually increased to a stream and then a steady pour. After many stops to adjust the settings on the big machine, they were ready, and the grain poured into the hopper. The fields were 40 acres each, and before they had gone all the way around the first field, the combine was full. They pulled the big truck behind or beside the combine and transferred the burden of golden wheat. It was a surprisingly small pile in the bottom of the truck. They would repeat the process over a thousand times for nearly two weeks. Once harvest began, it would continue nearly 24 hours a day until it was done. If it was during the day, they drove the truck to the local mill where the truck was weighed and the grain dumped. If it was at night, the grain was pumped into their own big grain silos where it would wait until after harvest. When the fields were bare, they would take a truckload at a time to the mill. The precious wheat was most vulnerable during harvest. As the days progressed, the stalks and heads grew more fragile, and even a brisk wind could knock grain onto the ground. Once on the ground, it could not be recovered. No effort was spared to get the grain in as soon as possible. If the frost came, the heads would swell, and the combine could not efficiently harvest it. If it snowed or rained, the brittle straw stalks would become soft and lay down when the combines could not pick it up. Nearly every hour, the combine had to be readjusted to accommodate the changing conditions. As the days warmed, the grain heads grew drier, the grain lighter, and the combine fans and screens had to be adjusted. As the evening came, the chaff became damp, and the fans had to be set higher to blow it away without blowing the grains out of the back end of the combine. Jim and Sam ran the big combines. Cheryl and Emily, who had both graduated from high school now, drove the big truck. Angela and Beth belled straw, and Benjamin, now age 11, drove the gas truck out to the combines to refuel them. Running a combine is the nastiest job man has invented for himself to do. The combine engine runs at full throttle. The belts, chains, fans, and machinery scream and shake as if they're going to fly apart, and the roar is deafening. The big cutter head hovers just above the ground, requiring constant adjustment. To pick up a rock 
or dirt is to damage the machine and cause hours of day or days of repair. The back end of the combine dumps out the straw and chaff. By far the worst, the chaff hovers in the air in a choking cloud, not unlike some ancient pestilence decreed by the voice of an angry god. It fills the cab until the windows are coated and the driver's skin itches. His nose runs and his eyes are red and puffy. Jim and Sam coughed and sneezed constantly. Before long, they wrapped scarves around their faces, but the scarves were not sufficient. They tried gauze masks, but they were plugged in minutes. Finally, they brought big dust masks designed especially for mines. The masks kept the chaff out of their lungs, but not their eyes. Every so often, they had to run to the windshield wipers and knock the dust off the window, and every few minutes, they had to wipe the inside of the glass with a rag. During the day, it was hot and dusty. During the night, it was cold and dusty. They were amazed at how much grain they had harvested. From the fields with adequate water, they harvested 35 bushels to the acre. Even on the fields that had suffered the most, they harvested enough grain to break even. Before long, it became apparent that they would have a good harvest after all. They rejoiced as truck after truck of grain went to the mill. By the end of the harvest, they had delivered over 21,000 bushels of grain to the mill. The current price of grain was $4.35 per bushel. Simple math told them that they could make all of their payments and still have plenty to live on until the next year. It wasn't as good as they had hoped, but it was enough. Every aspect of farming is a gamble, but deciding when to sell your wheat is the biggest gamble of all. The price of wheat is always lowest during harvest since there is an abundance of grain, and many farmers must sell immediately. Because of this, the supply is more than the demand. Most grain mills offer the, to store the wheat for a few pennies a bushel until the farmer is ready to sell. If you could hold off, the price usually rose by the first of the next year. It was considered prudent to wait as long as possible to sell your harvest. Accordingly, Jim decided to wait. Even a few pennies per bushel raised uh, bushel raise yielded thousands of dollars in additional income. It was September 21, 1972 when the news came. The United States announced a total grain embargo against the Russians. Frantically, farmers rushed to sell before the prices plummeted. The mill immediately suspended all grain sales. All across the nation, farmers watched helplessly as the price of wheat slid and finally stuck at $2.85 per bushel. Without hope that the price would rise anytime soon, Jim sold the wheat for a huge loss. Their actual cost of growing the grain was $3.95 per bushel. Expecting the worst, Jim and Sam went to the local bank they had borrowed the money from to grow their crop. To their surprise, the bank was willing to wait to be paid back, and they loaned them money for the next year's crop. They saw the good job that the Mendehoys had done with their farm, and they knew the price of wheat was beyond their control. It was the best they could expect, and they mentally prepared themselves to do much better the next year. They worked steadily during the winter, rebuilding several engines, repairing the equipment, welding sprinkler pipe. They worked every daylight hour and many dark ones. It was a peaceful time and one of almost total poverty. Christmas time found them without funds except for the barest necessities. They gathered the family around and explained the situation. Rather than feeling dejected, the kids welcomed the challenge with and enthusiastically set themselves to making gifts. They plotted and planned, schemed and worked their magic in secret little huddles, and instead of Christmas lasting a week, it lasted a month because their preparations were so lengthy. The girls sewed, painted, knitted, wrote poetry, made photo albums, cooked special treats, and invented hundred 
small but loving gifts. The boys built, sawed, welded, and otherwise crafted thoughtful and fun gifts for everyone. Jim built Laura an apple cider press from old machinery parts and wood, something she had often spoken about. Sam made her a butter mold from a small but perfect piece of maple he'd found. It was a time of joyful anticipation and very little money was spent. Christmas morning was magical. Cheryl put her angel still wearing coveralls atop of the tree, and everything was perfect. There were fewer gifts to give, but each was highly special, both in thought and in the amount of effort and time it took to create it. The gifts were unwrapped slowly with everyone else watching. Many tears were shed, both by the receiver and the giver. They spent the day appreciating their gifts, laughing about the efforts of the joys, and making fresh apple cider. The press worked perfectly, and they sipped the sweet cider as if it were the nectar of life. Far sweeter than the juice was the love that flowed in glorious abundance for many years thereafter. Everyone would say it was the best Christmas ever. After days of fasting and prayer, they decided to hang on and farm again the next year. They were, after all, farmers, and the decision was as much genetic as it was logical. Ever more important was their attachment to the ward. Their father, Bishop Jin, was making dramatic headway in reactivating lost members. The ward had grown in size by almost half again, and all of who were previously inactive members. At one point, nearly 10% of the adult membership in the ward had been disfellowshipped. One family simply showed up to the church and never wavered thereafter. Their reason? To keep from having Bishop Jim come to their home and disfellowship us too. They laughed and laughingly insisted. It wasn't really their reason, but it played a part in their thinking. Early the next spring, the Mahoys dug new wells, deepened and improved old ones, and bought enough sprinkler equipment to cover the entire farm. When the freeze left the ground, they worked round the clock. No effort was spared. They labored like dragons, and after four weeks and 800 acres seeded. The new sprinkler equipment functioned perfectly, and the farm turned a lush green. They waited with breathless suspense for everything, no, for something to go wrong, but nothing did. The crops came up, the water burst from the ground as if by miracle, and hope returned. During this time, they labored on... In the churches before, fasted weekly, studied the scriptures, held numerous callings, sang in the choir, and taught classes. It was a time of sweet joy and joyful season in the sun. They did develop one unique farming practice, which their neighbors thought would cost them their farm. After much discussion, it was decided that moving the sprinklers on Sunday was breaking the Sabbath, and they decided not to do so. Jim said, The Lord called me to be bishop to labor in his kingdom, and he expects me to keep the Sabbath day holy. The Lord needs a bishop, and I need a miracle so the crops won't die without water on Sundays. We'll both do our jobs, and they both did. Jim's fields were a wonder to behold. People drove a hundred miles to see the crops that didn't need water on Sundays, shook their heads, and drove away thinking it was a trick. Chris turned ten that year and started first grade. He was a little old, but he was just now ready. His little body was stunted by years of malnutrition and was about the size of a six-year-old. He hadn't touched a match in three years and was happy, loving, and loved child. His thick black hair still had two wild tufts where the hair grew around large scars left by Mr. Cigarette. Laura's heart ached every time she combed his hair before school, but Chris seemed to have forgotten those days. Laura had taught him the alphabet and he could read 50 words from flashcards. He could recognize all the numbers and knew all of the do's and don'ts about school. Do say please and thank you. Don't pick your nose and forget to zip your pants up after going to the bathroom. 
He knew that schoolboys don't wet their pants, hit other kids, especially girls, or throw things. They mind their teacher and pay attention whenever she's talking. The fact that Chris understood such things was a miracle. He came to them with almost no social skills and lacked even the most basic rec reasoning. Mommy Laura, as Chris lovingly called her, had drilled him endlessly until he knew all the rules and possibly a few extra just in case. For unsophisticated farming folk, getting a certified letter was a rare, f frightening experience. Before Angela was back in the house from the mailbox, the entire family knew about it from her excited shouting. It was addressed to Jim Mahoy, and Laura dispatched Rachel to get him from the equipment shed. Uh, the return address was from the State of Utah Department of Family and Youth Services. Jim sat down and carefully opened the letter with his pocket knife. He read it before handing it to Laura. She read for a few minutes before having to sit down and her eyes filled with tears. What's wrong? Beth demanded. Cheryl reached for the letter, which Laura let her take. She read it and looked around the room as if searching for someone. All of the boys were outside. Chris's father wants him back. She said quietly, looking at the letter. She looked up to see if she had spoken out of turn, but both Jim and Laura were looking at her as if grateful she had spoken the dreaded words. She read on. There is to be a hearing before a judge to determine custody. Papa Jim is supposed to appear with Chris a week from Monday. The next Monday morning, Laura packed Chris's small suitcase as well as a larger one. He had little comprehension of what was going on and laughed excitedly as he lugged his luggage to the car. Each of the kids gave him a hug, told him they loved him, and walked him to the car. Jim and Laura got into the front seat of the station wagon with Chris between them. They drove away and were gone, but not before Cheryl was in tears. This was too close to her own experience and she had a bad feeling about it. The drive seemed to go by too fast. Before they were ready, the Mahoys were sitting in a small room, uh, oppressively dark with wood paneling and worn red carpeting. Chris squirmed between them and seemed both excited and afraid. They had told him that this was a meeting to see if they, if he wanted to live with his real father again. When Chris saw his father, he hesitated and then ran to him and gave him a hug. They both seemed happy to see each other. The man was with another woman who was obviously not Chris's mother. She also gave Chris a hug and seemed pleased to meet him. Jim and Laura waited patiently. Tony, Chris's father, walked up to Jim and shook his hand. I want to thank you for taking Chris these last few years. I'm sorry I haven't contacted you sooner. This has been a ter terribly difficult divorce. I knew Chris was safe and that he was being spared much of the pain in our lives. As you can see, I have remarried and made many personal improvements. I'm sorry for any pain taking Chris back might cause you. I can see that you love him. What you can't see is that I do too. I'm ready and anxious to be his daddy again. Tony had a lawyer who presented their case and read from state statutes. The judge listened attentively and nodded frequently. When it was their turn, Jim stood and began telling about how Chris had come to live with him and his deplorable physical condition. But the judge interrupted him and said it was irrelevant. Jim tried to explain that Chris had been burned with cigarettes and beaten. The judge asked curtly if they had evidence that Chris's father had done it, or if Chris had just said that his father had done it. They had to say no. The judge wouldn't listen to more. 
He simply said that the law stated that natural parents had the right to their children unless there was obvious evidence of being unfit, able, unable to provide, or abusive. He banged the gavel and Chris no longer lived with Papa Jim and Mama Lori. His new family swept him away and before they could even say goodbye, he was gone. Laura cried all the way back home and Jim drove with grim determination. She could hear his teeth grinding. When they returned home without Chris, Cheryl ran to her room and stayed there the rest of the day. That evening, just before family prayers, everyone was quiet and an air of sadness hung over them like a rain cloud. Laura, obviously fighting back strong emotions, said, Kids, I know it's hard to see Chris leave after leaving, uh, living with us for four years. We all loved him. Sometimes patients in a hospital fall in love with their doctors and the doctors love them back. But this time, but the time always comes when they have to leave, because they can't live at the hospital. It's better that they get well and return to their real lives. We were Chris's hospital, and because we loved him when he most needed it, he got well. While he did... While he was getting well with this, his father was getting well at his own hospital. Now they are together, and we mustn't mourn the fact that he has his family back. Let's be happy for him and remember him with happy hearts. Jim felt like giving her a standing ovation. His heart swelled with pride for her courage and pure heart. He slid to his knees and in and in his soul and prayer that evening he wished everyone could be blessed with a mother like Laura to love them so perfectly and to heal their young lives. When he finished he looked up to see Laura staring at him, a radiant look of wonder and tender love on her face. Her words had healed the family's hearts his prayer had healed hers. The spring of seven, 1793 <laughs> The spring of 1973 was slow in coming, and by the time the ground was thawed enough to begin planting, it was almost summer. In order to have a reasonable expectation of a good harvest, the planting had to be done by the first week in May. They started working the soil the first day of May, leaving them less than a week to complete a four-week project. Their only choice was to purchase another tractor. It arrived in a few days, and they worked around the clock until the crops were in. They did it in exactly ten days. This feat left them semi-conscious from exhaustion, but it was done, and done well. Emily and Cheryl left to attend Rick's college that spring, and it was an exciting time for them, and they departed with many tears and much laughter. They arranged to share a dorm room at college and took comfort in the fact that they were together. Emily was a whiz at school and could give Cheryl much-needed help in her classes. Cheryl had shed her defensive shell and become a natural with boys and in social settings. She helped shy Emily find a comfortable niche in college society. Together, they each eased their mutual transition into college life. Jim and Sam had learned much over the winter. They read many books, consulted with neighbors, hired an agricultural spell to calculate optimum fertilizer rates and set schedules for spraying. They carried out their plan like clockwork and the crops grew. Again, they refused to water the crops on Sunday, and oddly enough, the crops didn't seem to mind. They grew thick and lush. The fields were solid green as far as one could look in any direction. In their community, no crop of grain had ever been as lush as this one was. Neighbors stopped their cars besides the fields and walked out into them just to experience the rich feeling of such a lush strand, no, lush stand of grain. 
They returned to their own fields with renewed determination and faith in the valley and its thin but fertile soil. Sam turned 19 that fall and received his mission call to South Africa. The family had to get out the big atlas to see where he was to go. They rejoiced, his mother cried, and plans were made to take Sam to the mission home right after harvest. The chill of fall was already in the air, and the sprinklers had been turned off weeks earlier. The fields were a golden sea of he heavy with grain. Old-timers could not remember a time when such a crop of grain had been grown in the valley. Jim cut a 10-foot square piece of ground, thrashed it by hand, and measured the results. It represented over 100 bushels to the acre. That Sunday, the family held a special day of fast to thank Heavenly Father and to rejoice in his blessings and kind favor. The new church house had been dedicated the week before, and their long labors in building it suddenly ended. It truly was a time of joy. Sam pushed open the big double doors of the red barn and backed a huge combine out into the yard. Even though combines are big, are as big as a small house, they are complex, finicky machines prone to breakdowns and failures. They require constant maintenance and careful operation to keep them from breaking down. Both he and his dad had worked until noon on the big machines before they were comfortable that they were ready to go. Sam was working on the John Deere combine when he felt a chill blow through the cabin. He glanced up to see a black cloud rolling across the valley. It looked like a thundercloud, but much lower to the ground. Within several minutes, the ferocious cloud had reached the far edge of the Mahoy farm and immediately unleashed a devastating barrage of hail. The cloud swept across the farm from end to end, changing course to make the L-shaped turn of the last field. Then, as suddenly as it came, the cloud lifted and blew off into non-existence. Sam ran into the fields with his father. Within minutes, the entire family had joined them, and they all stared at the ground and whirl wordless shock. The fields were a perfect sheet of golden grain and glistening hailstones. Little, if any, grain remained on the stalks. The entire field of wheat was destroyed. There was no point in driving the combines out into the field since there was no way to adequately recover grain on the ground. The loss was tragic and complete. Weeks later, the banks foreclosed on the Mahoy farm. Dealers came and repossessed sprinkler equipment and tractors. Everything was mortgaged to pay for the massive loans they had incurred, and within weeks, an auction was held wherein everything they possessed of any value was sold to pay the debt, furniture, clothing, tools, jewelry, and vehicles. Even a stack of fence posts was sold. In the final analysis, the Mahoys had lost everything. They were penniless, homeless, and destitute. The farm was repossessed, and the proceeds from the auction barely canceled the mortgage debt. They still owed over $100,000 to the small bank they, that had loaned them the money to operate the farm. The night before they were to leave their once beautiful farm, Sam did not eat. Even though he had spent the day loading their old GMC truck with their last few possessions, he had fasted. His heart was heavy and his face shaken to the core. They had spent three years joyfully serving the Lord, obeying his commandments, fasting, and worshiping. They had risked all to keep the Sabbath day holy. Their father had worked to exhaustion to serve as the Lord's bishop, and his powerful service was a great blessing to the ward. Their farming had been a success, and yet, in an act that was apparently divinely engineered, they had lost everything. Theirs was the only farm affected by the hill, and the destruction of their lives had been thorough and complete. That night, Sam spent a long time on his knees asking, wondering, begging, and even complaining. 
it did not seem fair. It did not seem so unkind, so undeserved, and so unjust. He was young, and he knew he would recover in time, but his parents had lost a lifetime of work and savings. They had nowhere to go and no hope of the future. He climbed into bed with a heavy heart and slept fitfully. In the night, he was given a dream, one he would never forget. So impressed was he by the experience that he hunted up a few pieces of paper the next morning and recorded it as follows. Last night I had a dream. It was so vivid that I was unsure if it was a dream or reality until I woke up the next morning. I dreamed I was standing in a field of ripe grain. As I looked out over the field of grain, I instantly knew many things about it, as if I had lived there all my life. The field was lush and deep, as rich as crop has ever grown on earth. Along the borders of the field were flowering shrubs, bushes that grew spontaneously. The roads leading to the fields were lined with flowering trees and bushes more beautiful than any formal garden I could conceive. Yet they had not been planted, but had grown there spontaneously or by decree. I knew that the rains had come to water the fields every night, and there were no weeds nor noxious plants anywhere. In one corner of the field, a huge machine was harvesting the grain. The machine was little, made little noise or dust and never broke down. It moved across the fields, cutting the grain, which poured into the hopper in a stream, in a heavy stream of gold. The man driving the machine barely gave thought to what he was doing, but sang as he ran his hands through the flowing grain and danced on the machine as it, as much as drove it. Immediately in front of this huge machine were women and men dressed in beautiful robes of bright colors, with flowers in long streamers running through their hair and across their shoulders. They were singing and dancing, walking ahead of the machine, as its big cutter bars bit into the thick grain. I instantly knew that they were not afraid of the machine because it was against the laws of nature for them to be harmed by it in any way. Neither they nor the person operating it had any fear that they could be injured. They simply were in the joy of harvest, and it seemed to consume their entire souls. I somehow knew that the laws of nature had been altered, and the law of opposition in all things had been done away with. Anything they tried to do yielded to their efforts. If they tried to move a rock a hundred times larger than themselves, it was obligated by divine decree to move. If they wanted to farm, they would be successful by divine decree. If they wanted to run a business, they would succeed by divine decree. I also understood that it was impossible for them to injure one another physically or in any way. The laws of God would not allow it. Nothing could be lost, damaged, stolen, misplaced, ruined, or abused, and nothing was unusable, unattractive, or undesirable. Their society was perfect, with no crime, taxes, corruption, or sin. Their government was by divine decree and perfectly just. There was no courts, criminals, or jails. There was no such thing as hospitals, doctors, illness, disease, or death. I watched all this with a thrill in my heart, experiencing their joy, yearning to join them, and yet aware that I was still bound to this world where things were much less than perfect. I thought this must be the celestial kingdom and yearned with all my heart to be there. As I watched, a kindly voice from behind me asked, Sam, is this what you want? Oh yes, I replied with all my heart, this is the life I long for. There was a moment of silence before the voice replied, What you see is the telestial kingdom, the least of all the rewards I give unto men. If you seek a life without opposition and refuse to learn the lessons of this life, this will be your reward. 
If you desire a greater reward, then endure with patience, and great shall be your blessings, and even greater than the mind man can comprehend. It was then that I understood that these people had lost their agency. They could choose any righteous act, but it was physically impossible for them to choose to disobey or sin. They have always been free to choose righteousness. What I did not understand until then was that agency is largely the right to choose to do evil. They had lost this right. I knew they were not organized into families. Their relationships were according to their chosen vocation and common interest. They loved one another but did not marry or have children. They were without authority except over their own possessions, and they could never progress beyond what they were at that time. They had no priesthood, and without it they could never return to the presence of God. No sooner had I perceived these thoughts than the vision closed, and I found myself sitting up in bed marveling at all I had seen. I knew many things about their world, as if I had lived there all my life. I have recorded only a few of them, but that are the greatest interest to me at this time in my life. The next morning, Sam called the family together and related the dream he had written and the impressions he received while in the vision. He told them that his greatest impression was that everything would be all right. Everyone took comfort in the dream, even the idea that Heavenly Father had seen fit to bless them with this word of comfort at the very time they felt abandoned by him. As they loaded their last things onto the old truck, Jim took Sam aside. Son, I'm so proud of you. I didn't receive a vision last night, but I did have a peaceful feeling. I too know that everything is going to work out. The family really took comfort from your dream. Dad, I'll write a letter to the church and ask them to postpone my mission for a year. I know we can no longer afford to pay my way. The ward can't afford it either. Besides, we're leaving town. I hate to do it. But I don't see an alternative. Jim put his arm around his son. This spring, as we were planting the fields, the spirit whispered to me to take the money for your mission and put it in a savings account under your name, he answered. I took $5,000 and put it in your name in a bank in Utah. They have your mission money. The Lord has seen fit to preserve that part of our dreams. But you and the family are penniless. How can I take all that money and leave you? You need me to help you start over. I'm sure the Lord will understand. This is just a delay, not an abandonment of my plans, don't you see? Now listen to me, my young son. The Lord instructed me to set that money aside for your mission. I obeyed, and he sanctified that money to your use. Those funds are sacred, don't you see? We would have lost everything. No, we would have lost them along with everything else, but we didn't. It would be sacrilege to misuse them even to buy gas to leave the farm. We have enough money to see us safely to Salt Lake. From there you will go on to your mission, and from there we will find a place to start a new life. As you said, it will all work out. Sam could not keep the tears from his eyes and merely nodded. He climbed into the station wagon with the family, and his dad got into the old truck. His moist eyes were only two of many as they pulled out onto the dirt road. A heavy snow f began to fall as if the heavens were mourning with them. They had one stop to make before leaving town. They still owed the bank a lot of money, and Jim wanted to stop and thank them for investing in his dream and to assure them that he would repay the debt as soon as he was able. In a small town, even the failure of one farm can burden a small bank. He felt bad that he had placed them under any hardship. The bank was small, even by small standards. It consisted of one teller window and an attached room wherein sat the bank president, Paul Richards. 
Brother Richards was a member of the, the other ward in town and was fully aware of their plight. Brother Richards was the one who had loaned them the money to run the farm. Even though he had not held the mortgage on their farm, he invest, his investment in the Mahoys exceeded $100,000. Had he been able, he would have loaned them enough money to farm another year, but it was beyond the resources of their small bank to do so. It was with much regret and much, many apologies that he had denied their request, and consequently they lost the farm. Jim and Brother Richards shook hands solemnly. Jim was the first to speak. Brother Richards, we have said all we need to, except that I want to thank you for your kindness and to assure you I will repay every cent of what I owe you. Paul got a strange look on his face and responded, But you don't owe me anything. You know better. I owe you many thousands of dollars. But you don't. I received payment just two days ago. Payment was made by bank draft transfer. I assumed it came from assets you still held in Utah. I no longer own anything in Utah. There must be an error. Someone accidentally deposited those funds in my account. You'd best look it up and correct the mistake. Brother Mahoy, I checked and double-checked. The money came from Utah and had your name on the draft. That's all I know. That's all I need to know. Your account is paid in full. Do you mean to tell me that I owe you nothing? Actually, I owe you money. The bank draft was 10000 more than the amount you owe. I have a cashier's check here for you. He pulled out the envelope from his drawer and handed it to a stunned Jim. Are you sure? There's got to be a mistake. I... Jim, I have lived in this area all my life. In 40 years, I have never seen a family move in to our area and do greater good, set a greater example, or live a richer, more Christ-like life. You and your family practically built our new church. You have had a greater influence for good upon this area than you could possibly know. If you insist that this money didn't come from you, then it came directly from God or from someone acting as his agent. Don't argue with God or with me. Take your check, and God bless you for your journey. I can assure you, for years to come, whenever people refer to the bishop, they will be talking about Bishop Jim. Jim swallowed hard and wiped his eyes with the back of his hand before he spoke. I'll always remember this place as my first spiritual home. I'll miss you powerfully. But I have to ask, Paul, is this money from you? No, in all candor, I know only what I told you. It came from Utah with your name on it. Accept that fact that you have a miracle and rejoice over it. They embraced, and Jim walked slowly out of the building, and the check held out before him as if it was the most amazing possession of his life. Who could have done such a thing? Who could have paid all that money? Laura exclaimed after she had heard the story. Cheryl spoke with great conviction. An angel in coveralls. In reality, they would never know, and the origin of that vast sum of money would always remain a mystery. In the final analysis, Cheryl had been right. As long as Cheryl lived with them, whenever she was asked to pray, she always said, And God bless the angel in coveralls. They all knew she meant their unnamed benefactor.